so I'm Jasmine. My pronouns are she, her, and when I'm one of the co-founders and creators of Parenting is Political podcast, and I'm here with George. George, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is George M. Johnson. I'm the author of the book, All Boys Aren't Blue. Um, I use they, them pronouns. I identify as non-binary, and I'm a Black queer writer, activist. Um, yes, you are. Speaker, talker. I don't know. <laughs> I have a lot of titles nowadays, I guess, so. Yeah. yeah, and if anyone's wondering where Mo is, they are intentionally missing. Um, we sort of thought through how to hold what a beautiful creation George has provided us. And although I am a light bright, extra light bright, I'm a black queer woman. And so Mo is choosing not to participate um, out of respect for sacred black spaces, because if we're going to talk about sacred black spaces, we cannot talk about, like, we cannot leave out your book. Can I tell <laughs> you how it has impacted my family? I mean, I'm sure you're hearing so many people um, talk about how it's landing with them. Yes. But in our home in particular, well, let me just back up. First of all, we've been knowing each other on the internet for a really long time. Yes. <laughs> I like, like really long time. Yep. And I went back and looked at our history and I mark my time on social media, um, pre lovey dragging me and calling me a fake activist and, and all of her followers attacking me. And then I locked everything down and deleted everyone. I became like very suspicious of like, you know, not everybody be for you when they be watching. And so I think at one point I was like, George, I'm not sure about George. And I cut you. And like <laughs> Hari went and so many other people, I was just like, delete, delete, block, block, block. And I don't know. I found my way back to you somehow. I stopped being such a punk and realizing that I needed to stand in my power and people could drag me on the internet for all kinds of fake ass shit. But as a queer black woman with a trans daughter living in Arkansas, I, don't, I didn't need to be scared anymore. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's where we, we were connected, pre-lovey and post-lovey. <laughs> um, and so I saw peripherally all of the beginning, you know, murmurations. Of, that's what birds do. They murmurate. That's okay. I'm using that word. <laughs> okay. um, of, of when you release the book. And I was like, okay, I got to support my homie. I've been in love with them for a minute, been in love with them for a minute. Let me support them. And I put it on my audio book because I ride when I read. I go and on these like long 30 mile bike rides. And then I came home immediately after five miles. And I was like, I need to put, like, y'all need to hear this. And we put it on the Sono speaker. And we spent two days of our weekend, everyone, the TV off. We're laying around listening to your beautiful words, your beautiful words. And all of us, even Mo, who is a white person, they are white and non-binary, found themselves in your words. And I think that's one of the most beautiful thing about like black liberatory work is it's expansive and people can like orient themselves to a certain kind of truth that is liberatory. Yeah. So that is how your book landed with us. And then I was like DMing you pictures of us. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure you're getting those stories everywhere. And so I wonder what are some through lines for you of the themes that emerge and what people are saying, how this, they're connecting with your work? 
Yeah, the I would say like the largest one that comes through is like, this is the first time I've ever read a book that resonated with me or the first time I've ever felt seen um, in a book or felt that my story was being told properly in a book, uh, which is kind of scary because it's, um, it's 2020. And that's really, really sad that all these years have I mean, we've been we've been as as black folk in this country for 400 plus years, and to think that there are still these firsts happening for people and these first texts that people are being able to read to be seen in and felt seen in, um, it's very disappointing in, in, in many ways. It's like very disappointing, but then it's like you said, it's like uh, liberatory in, in many ways, simply because. Um, people now are, are being set free by the words and people who didn't have language to describe who they were and what they felt, they now have language to do so. So I think that's the biggest through line that's happening is simply the fact that people now have a book that like resonates with them so much that they're able to talk to others, talk to their family, talk to their peers, and, and, and in many ways, just hand them the book and just say like, read this and then we need to talk or like read this if you want to understand what I've always felt like. And I've, I've had that, you know, come through a lot too. I think one of the other through lines is a lot of um, aunts, uh, not so many parents, a lot of parents, but more aunts, uncles, people who are adjacent to the queer child uh, are reading the, the book and working with the parents to, to get along with their their children who they may not understand or they may be struggling with. So I think that's kind of been the 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 most that comes through is like that family member that knows that some that the nephew is queer or that the niece is queer um, and is using the book as that and they're reading it together. I think that's the other thing too is like families reading it together is is really, really cool. And so I've, I've been seeing a lot of that happening as well. And there are definitely some really intense stories that unfold, particularly the conversation around your relationship and interactions with your cousin. And we let the kids, like our, our kids are 13, 10, and 9, and they heard those things. Now, for us, our choice was surrounding the reality that they are sexual um, assault survivors themselves by a family member. Their biological father was the, the, the assailant in that situation. Um, and like normalizing how to hold people with dignity and care, but also say that they still need to be remain accountable and that you can still honor people in that tension. It was just a really beautiful abolitionist politic that was emerging that is in alignment with how they live their lives as well as young people. And I remember at, when the story was unfolding, Addison was getting a snack in the kitchen and you're telling the details of it. And Addison goes, well, yep, know what that's about. And then just kept on her merry way. And it was just such a, res a, a useful resource as a parent to be able to create normative conversations and experiences where the person isn't centered as someone who was completely destroyed. Now I'm not, and I don't wanna downplay the impact of what you experienced. And only the, you know, the majority of what our young people, particularly through like the state and the things that we had to deal with because there were legal things around their experiences, we're like, well, now that you're a child sexual assault survivor, your life will never be the same and you'll never this. And like this message of just brokenness and destruction and how you 
offered the idea that like it was his job to heal and be accountable for the harms that he had and he didn't need to spread them around um and it was your job also to heal and they they got it they picked it up 13 10 and 9 were like yeah that makes sense so you know it's fantastic that like kinfolk and other caregivers are definitely using it as a resource and i wanted to invite you on the podcast because I think parents need to use it directly as a resource with their children, apart from their children, allow their children to have access to it, their young people, um, because it's so, so critical. One of the other things that really um, made me fall more in love with you was um, the, the, you sharing my childhood life with me without knowing it like how like were you watching real sex with me and queer as folk because i was sneaking around like mm-hmm. you just better wait till hbo and cinemax got this after dark series programming and i was learning so much about myself as a queer right. person <laughs> like, right you know i was like a little queer girl in the south watching real sex and then like later trying to figure out how to like masturbate on a pillow and so, you know, that it was such an interesting thing to have someone so specifically state two things that really impacted me. Are you also experiencing folks being like, yeah, me too, in that area as well? Yes, I think, you know, a lot of times people are like, did we all grow up in the same, like, house? Like, I get that comment a lot from people like, wait, did we all grow up together? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I think in many ways, because we all had to navigate the same systems, uh, and so we just all kind of knew the only places to find or identify people who at least have some type of semblance to what we thought our lived experience was supposed to look like were those programs. And so I do, uh, so a lot of people, yes, like connected with that. Um, when I talk about like the show Oz, like a lot of people are like, yeah, like that was the reason I would watch Oz. I'm like, well, yeah, like that was literally the only connection that we had to, to, to black men uh, having sex, even though it was rape most of the time, <laughs> um, you know, but it was, that was literally the only connection that we had to at least see people who looked like us um, engaging in sexual activities. And so like, like I said, queer as folk, real sex, um, I think like what well, Karama was on the real world, um, Noah's Ark, mm-hmm. like, Noah's Ark is the little, I think I was in college by the time that came out, but, but still it was, uh, yeah, in many ways, like queer people, we only had like these minimal ways to 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 find ourselves and so we all lean into the exact same things to find ourselves and so in many ways like I said when I was every time I talk about like the things I did so many people were like oh my god we were all literally doing the exact same thing and it's like well yeah like the system was designed in a way and that that way was how the way that we could I guess work around the system (laughs) in many ways yeah, and I think it demonstrates how so much about queerness, particularly queer blackness, is like connected through energetic, you know, connections through time and space and geography. And we find ourselves having these same experiences and holding these same spaces um, in like really, really beautiful ways. For me, as a young person, it was trying to figure out if I wanted to be Khadija or if I wanted to be with Khadija in Living Single. I was like, why am I so fixated on Khadija? And do I want to be her best friend? Or what does that mean? You know, and I've seen some of those memes that are like, you might have been a queer kid if you had a ton of like really close homoerotic relationships. And then you come out later in life and you're like, oh, fuck, that's what that was. (laughs) Uh, Which to that point, 
brings up another really, um, gosh, I feel like everything about your work is like critical. Like it's like, it needs to be in a canon somewhere. Um, but you talk about second adolescence and that was something that I learned um, very early in my experience. Like I came out to my mom when I was eight and she was like, okay, girl, you gay, like eat your food. It was not a thing, it was not a thing because she um, grew up in drag scene and she had a couple of friends, you know, she's, um, her father is from Belgium and her mother is Cherokee. So she grew up within like adjacent to Cherokee culture although she's red, white, and is white passing. So she was in a political place where Loving V Virginia was unfolding and she had a ton of black community and she ran away from home and was raised by a black minister and his wife. And then a, like a religious, like deeply Southern black religious minister who was like, oh, that's okay, go hang out with your little, your little gay friends or whatever. So, so she was sort of already primed to accept me as a queer person, but me being a Virgo and me, you know, being a Christian, all these different things that were influencing my life um, put me in a place where I, I denied it for so long. Like it, I came out safely at home and then I went to youth group and was like, true love waits. Here's my purity ring. And right. I'm, I am not going to give in to my sins. And then later in high school being like, this is inevitable. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fuck some some girls um so the second adolescence that a lot of adult parents who are queer when they come out as parents feel as though they're failing in being like respectable good caretakers for their children because they want to be out here fucking and experimenting and figuring out all these different things and like they want to figure out how to live out loud but there is another layer of repression that is placed on parents within like the white cis heteropatriarchal capitalistic society right so i also think the second adolescence is critical did you what were you thinking as you were working through that part of your story yeah i guess with the second adolescence i just kind of kept processing um the one thing i always see is like the, the kids who go to prom with with like the the, the gays who go to prom together mm -hmm. and i always thought about like you know, my brother had girlfriends, my cousins had girlfriends um, growing up. So like they got to experience what it meant to have to care for somebody else, what it meant to have to to take someone else into account into your own life. Uh, there was there's a certain skill set that comes with when you start dating that young or when you, you know, you have the ability to start um, learning those type of skill sets um, at that age. And I think in many ways, like I was so caught up with um, just trying to survive mm -hmm. yeah. that, you know, I, I just didn't have those opportunities. And so then by the time you get to, especially in this country, the age of 25, 26, 27, where marriage is the next thing that you're supposed to be contemplating, I literally am just now announcing who I am for the first time. So whereas my brothers and my cousins all announced who they were at 11 and 12 mm -hmm. and then started to be able to explore who they were in their heterosexuality at that time, I did not have that opportunity. I was 13, 14, 15 years delayed from that. And so now I'm starting at age 12 in many ways, okay. which then means 
if they're, you know, if, if it took them 12 to 15 years to figure it out before they were ready to settle down or ready to start thinking family planning, those type of things, well, 12 to 15 years for me at 25 makes me 37 to 40. And so I think when we see, especially with queer people struggling with relationships and struggling with things like deeper into their years and people just like, why I can't seem to get it together. It's like, well, we didn't start we didn't start when y'all started. Yeah. We didn't even start to learn the skill set and start to acquire, start to even open up that part of the brain. Exactly. Which, which requires empathy, which requires uh, respect for someone that's gonna now share space with you and make decisions with you and boundaries. And so like, we've always been rolling on our own for so long that for us to do that work, intersected with the fact that we also now are in like when you did it you didn't have a job and you didn't have like you had school mm -hmm. you had my minute responsibilities when i am doing it i have a career i have bills i have finances i have life i have health i have parents potentially could have kids like i have all of these things and now i am now entering the identity and my uh, you know, the second adolescence, as I say, because now I'm discovering where you discovered this 15 years ago, but it's going to take me years to get there, which means now we're talking about, you know, creeping up into the thirties, the forties in many ways. And, and we see it a lot, you know, people who just never come around. And, and then I also, I've written about it before. Like I always talk about like the old man at the club and it was always a running joke. Cause you always go to a gay club and there's always like some old men there but you know the older i got i had to process like they all lived during an epidemic like they lost all their friends mm -hmm. they lost everything they may have refused to love because they didn't want to lose a person yeah. ever again and or they had to suppress their identity until they were 40 or 50 years old so this is literally their first time going through their adolescence where yes, they would continue is something we don't always talk about yeah. You know, and I think that because our society is so entrenched in this like neoliberal norms, it's like, we're out, we're proud, we have gay marriage, like you need to just, and, and so many of us who have been made vulnerable by structural oppression and anti-black violence are, are constantly negotiating safety. Um, yes. And it's like, if, if, a, if a queer black person just shares a single layer of themselves with you, you have been more than blessed. So, you know, and so it's a great reminder for myself to also hold others in that kind, same kind of dignity and that same kind of care, which I just feel is one of the most poignant parts of All Boys Aren't Blue is there's just so much care work throughout it. And I wonder if you have ever recognized and seen yourself as a healer, because that's healing work that you were doing, not just for yourself, but for others. I think once the book came out, um, like I knew what my purpose in life was. And, you know, to, to, I guess to come around and realize like, oh, I'm a, I'm a healer. Um, that was kind of like that final step which I think happened once once the book came out, honestly, like, and that's when I kind of came to that realization, like, okay, like you do healing work. Um, and it wasn't until I started doing like the first set of um, virtual events and someone on the virtual event said, uh, that it was basically, I was talking about, um, 
someone on the virtual event basically was like, the way that you practice abolition around not holding any animosity towards the person who molested you and also knowing that someone hurt them and now and they never got their stories and, and they were just saying like you know in the comments on the live like that type of abolition is something that the world has not seen george and i don't know if you know what you're even doing because you're just doing it but they're like that's going to help a lot of people release that um and so i think that comment made me start to think about what i actually was doing with the book like i just wanted to write i just wrote the story and i put it out there and i i do i don't know like i guess my grandmother just raised me in a way that you know you just have empathy at all times and you know you know they always say you never know what someone else is going through and so like even when a person harms you it's like there, there, there's something still there, right? Like that person is still human in, in many ways. And um, I just try to always like work through that because like vengeance, vengeance takes a lot of energy and hate takes a lot of energy and grudging, you know, grudges take a lot of energy and all those things. Yes, people be out know. here for retribution. Yeah, and, and I just have no desire to harm black folks. Um, I, I just have no desire to do it. It's like the, the world does enough harm on black folks and I don't have to do that in my writing. I don't have to do that in the way that I live my life. I don't have to um, operate like that. And I felt that if I told it in that way that it would heal a lot of people simply because I know a lot of people carry that type of hate with them everywhere they go um, when someone has harmed them because they don't know how to release it. And I was hoping that, you know, at least the way that I was talking about these topics and, and kind of operating through an abolition lens and operating through an empathetic lens uh, that it would help people to kind of like come around to their own uh, wounds in many ways and, and start to do that type of work uh, on themselves. Uh, so yeah, like once the book came out, I think I definitely realized that the book was much bigger. I mean, like I felt the book was gonna do well. I didn't realize how many people needed needed to be freed of 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 the the story they had never told yeah i texted my um cousin who um is have to be tender with her but much older than me um she's about nine years older than me and no seven years older than me um and I have memories as like a eight, nine year old, like her putting a spoon in her pants and playing like she's the boy and I'm the girl. And you know, that was a frame of me like, oh, I'm just playing with my cousin. And I, you know, talked to, talked to her about your book and was like, we didn't even know what we were doing. Like you didn't know what you were doing because it happened to her, right? So um, it's a really beautiful legacy that you've created, that you have opened portals for people to transform intergenerational trauma and pain and be the people that, that stop that from, from moving out into the world. And um, I hope one day you're able to hold it um, and stop saying, it, well, I just was writing a story and, yeah. and to give it the sophistication <laughs> that yeah. this level of healing work um, deserves. But you did speak up someone that I was like, let me see if I can avoid it because my grandmother, Annie Pearl, Annie Pearl Franklin, 
like was my world is still my world and hold her on my body as an ancestor now but nanny Mm -hmm. just i was like again like did we all have the same grandmamas because (laughs) my i have this memory of my grandma after i had like fully come out and I think Mo and I were dating at some point and I told my grandma like I'm polyamorous and I'm not monogamous and I believe in just like relation anarchy in certain tenets of how how I show up and um we're having this conversation and my cousin brings over one of his friends and this is right before she died and he starts like trying to lay the mac down and my grandma was like boy you at the wrong tree she a faggot and like said it with like the most like discerning love and then like has Mo, Mo wasn't my wife at the time, but has Mo sit down and like, come here, Mo, Mo, and have this sweet potato pie. And then is sitting next to Mo and Mo is like, you know, trying to be respectful and trying to figure out their own white fragility around how do I honor like black elders. My grandma's got her cigarette and her crown at her table with her fly swatter next to her. Be like, you like the pie? You ever had sweet potato pie? Mo was like, yes, Jasmine makes the pie, just like your recipe. And she goes, so you ain't never had sweet potato pie. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, things quiet down. And um, Mo is a person who chooses to bind and is very public about that and needs to bind for their dysphoria. And my grandma's just trying to figure out what's happening with Mo and goes, I don't know what this day, this stuff is, but I might be into it. (laughs) Jasmine you're on to something and just that same spirit is what came through for me around how you saw nanny yeah and and nanny's love is that accurate I mean am I just trying to be your best friend for no reason (laughs) no I mean that's it's very accurate um I think the not I think I know because I'm writing it the next book will dive much deeper into who she was as a person um and so i'm very excited about that because it'll go much deeper to the relationship that she had with myself and my cousins and um just who she was and um, it'll also talk about her final days and um one of the final conversations we had around my sexuality while she was in the hospital and yeah i mean she just got it and she always got it and she just always knew you know who i was and what i was and from a very young age just nurtured the person that that i was to become, um, regardless of what my identity was or what my sexuality was or my gender was. Um, And in many ways, I mean, I don't think she cared. Like, she just didn't. Like, she cared to the point where it was just like, if she didn't understand it, she would question it or she would ask questions. But she she didn't care to the point that it would ever make her stop loving you or make her stop treating you anyway or 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 not allow you to come around or not bring you to church with her or you know any of those things and so yeah she just always operated from this space of like you know you start with love and then you kind of figure the rest out and you know she was also very big on like not throwing people away Hmm. or if you were to throw if you did throw someone away that you don't ever go back to retrieve it so make sure that before you throw a person away that that's that, that, that everything has been exhausted because you don't go is it the, the next book will have a lot of her sayings but one of the things she used to say was like um you don't go back out to the curb to pick up trash after you've thrown it out and she wow. was very very she meant that which was why she was very um 
big on not throwing people away. Even after something may happen, a dispute may have happened, someone may have wronged her, like she would still not necessarily throw you away. You may have to go away for a while. You may be, you know, maybe no communication for some years or whatever, but she didn't necessarily throw you away. And um, I think that was a testament to the fact that she knew so many kids had been thrown away. Uh, she had raised 24 foster kids uh, for the state of New Jersey while raising her own kids, like had all these different kids coming in and out, in and out. Um, and, you know, raising cousins, kids and rate, like she, she raised so many kids. So I think she understood what it meant to be a disposable body. And I think she never wanted to be a person that disposed of anyone because she saw how many people had been disposed of in her lifetime. Um, and many that she was able to, to, to bring in, you know? Um, and so I think when she had us, you know, there was no desire for her to ever not love us because of who we were. Um, no matter, yeah. no matter how just some things may have been done to her. Uh, yeah, she just always operated from that place. And I think, I really do honestly do think it, it, it kind of trickled down into to us um, in a way that we now operate much of the same way and, and how I operate and do activism and do work in community. I mean, it's a super rigorous approach to really, you know, so many people have all can say all kinds of stuff. Their analysis looks all sorts of ways, but the practice, like how it transforms into praxis, that's so rigorous. Um, and it's not the easy way out. And it's not supported by our society. We are supported by a society that says cut off and isolate and throw away and consume and extract. And so what a beautiful gift for her to add to her legacy and that you are passing on to so many other people as well. I love it. My grandma, Annie Pearl, also raised her, her 13 kids and then their kids and then their kids' kids. Um, and I didn't get to live with her full time, but she was the main person who raised me as well. And then she had a home daycare where babies who had mamas, um, you know, cause she, she's in El Reno, which is very, um, there are a lot of in, like native folks. And so if their parents were not well because of drug and alcohol and didn't show up for weeks at a time, the baby stayed with my grandma. And it was sort of like this subversive form of foster care, community care. And so I just love that not only do we have Anita Baker and being a Virgo in common, but we have, mm -hmm. you know, such an incredible, incredible elder and our ancestors. So what a gift to connect yeah. with you in that way. So we always ask everybody who come on this podcast, um, how is parenting political for you? And oftentimes people who are child, um, child free or childless uh, will respond with, well, I don't have kids, so I don't see how parenting is political for me. And I always like to push back. Um, and say that we're all caretaking and we're all parenting in some way and we have to um, abolish and agitate against this this like white cis het norm of if you didn't birth a child or adopt a child that the state validated that you're not a real parent so tell me how is parenting political for you I think in many ways I mean I think about the fraternity I think about how technically the way that the fraternity operates, I am the parent of 10 um, because I was the dean of three lines. And so every line that I am the dean of, I am the father of. And so 
Um, even when you look at it just on a structural level within orgs, I have 10 kids who have to deal with the fact that their, their parents is non-binary identified, publicly member of the fraternity, right? And like that falls back on them. But it they also know that there's a respect level for me regardless of how I identify. And so, you know, as I, you know, came to my own identity uh, from, <clears throat> I would say from about age like 24, 25 to where I am now, um, you know, it's been interesting because the, the frat, you know, has been something that's been a part of my life for almost 15 years. And so becoming one of the more, I guess you could say, famous members, known members of the organization is going to be interesting for the overall fraternity, right? Because the image then starts to shift because people are like, well, if that's their most famous member, what does that mean for the overall image of, of our org, right? What does that then mean for the people who come specifically through my chapter who I'm supposed to be shaping and molding and, and trying to, to mold the minds of? But I think the fact that these people who, who are decidedly below me in ranking, so to speak, uh, listen to me as a, as a person who is non-binary speaks volumes because many of them identify as heterosexual. And so in many ways, that's the politic because I'm shaping heterosexual minds to understand queer politic uh, and understand that their politic has to inherently be my, like my politic inherently is theirs, their politics is inherently mine. So we all have to figure out how all of that uh, goes together. So I think like from that level, um, it gets very political in, in terms of those type of like just historic black organizations. And I also am a two-time HBCU graduate. So it just the historical frameworks of how cis heterosexual those institutions are. And then you got a person like me who is becoming like this entity that will potentially shape the lives and the minds of people who are going into these institutions um, and coming out of these institutions in many ways. Um, then I also think along the lines of just like my own parents, uh, you know, every time, you know, the, the parent, the child always becomes the parent. And so, you know, like the last six weeks, I've gone to every dentist appointment with my dad. And, you know, that's been fun and interesting, but it's like the dentist calls me to make sure for him and you know and I pay the bill and I handle that part for him and I set up the appointments and I make sure we had a dental plan and he agrees to it with me and so in many ways you know my parents are relinquishing some of their parental things that they used to do for me um, to to give me the power to make decisions the important decisions that need to oversee the the I don't, I don't want to say like the end stages, but as they're growing older, uh, you know, your children have to start making the important decisions for you sometimes. And so there's a shift there where, you know, the child becomes the parent and I'm kind of, I'll be 35 uh, next month. And so in many ways, I am now starting to, to make that shift. My dad is 70, my mom will be 63. Um, and you know, as they as health things come up and things, I'm the the uh, power of attorney. I am the, the the name on all the accounts. I am the person who has to make any major final decisions for them. And so I think it becomes political in that way because you know we're always taught you know honor thy mother and father and the parents always right and you don't have a voice and you don't have a conversation. But I think over the years, my parents and myself have become friends. In, in addition to them being my parents, they're also my friends. And so um, that shift of power happens.
to where we can have those important conversations together and then not just be like, well, I'm gonna do this because I'm the parent. It's like, well, that's not how that works. And um, I think that is political in many ways because a lot of people just don't operate like that. They're just like, well, I don't yell at my mother or I don't yell at my dad or I don't challenge them. It's like, well, that's, that's no, like, I, you know, if, if like, there are times we're like, mommy, no, you can't do that. Or daddy, no, you can't do that. And no, that's your last, you know, like, and, and you'd have to put your foot down and just be like, no. Yeah. And I think my mom, my mom just relocated um, in for the first time moving away from Oklahoma, which is a big deal because Oklahoma, all of that culture. Um, and she came to be uh, with the with the grandbabies because they're in, entering into a new phase of healing after surviving so much assault. Um, and I said to her for the first time the other day, why do you have your shoes on in my carpet? Go take your shoes off and put them by the door, mom. And I was like, oh my, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. But I have two last things before we go. The first thing that I have, I want to ask your consent. I have a possible layer to add to your identity as a parent for you to consider. Sure. Can I do that? Yeah. So as I was thinking um, through what you were saying when you're talking about how your parenting is political, I want to call up that George is a non-binary person, a queer non-binary person reparenting George too. And so you get the opportunity and pleasure to have a queer parent guide your journey and take care of that like queer non-binary boy child you know in the beginning of phases of your yes. life and do that healing when that was how you were putting on identity and then do that healing as you're transitioning um through that second adolescence and now doing that identity as an adult non-binary person and i saw that clear as day throughout your book i was like george i hope they know that like they are reparenting themselves through this work into the future as you're parenting your parents as you're parenting your line siblings like did I say yeah that? I, I mean I, and it's funny that you brought it you said it i guess you say it in that way i do a lot of self-reflecting so i guess i just don't see it as i guess i just didn't see it as like me parenting myself but i definitely do like i have my altar and i talk to myself a lot and i do a lot of self-reflecting and a lot of my own healing work because you know the i tell people all the time like the bigger you get the more isolated you get and so I have to sit with myself sometimes and be like, and, and I will speak out loud. And sometimes I'll speak to George. Sometimes I'll speak to Matthew. Um, mm -hmm. and I'll say the name out loud. And I'll be like, all right, Matt, what's, what's going on? Like, talk through it. Mm -hmm. And I'll just start talking out loud and talking. And because through, you're doing that now it. in this moment as a queer, Black, non-binary person, you are getting the, the queer non-binary affirming parenting that you always deserve from the very beginning of your life. Yeah. And that yeah. is a beautiful gift that you're giving to yourself. And I hope you are <laughs> able to hold it as that. Because um, reparenting is no small task. And yeah. people like to uh, frame reparenting as just like a thing that happens internally just to yourself. But folks who have children who have been parented and harmed and they take them into foster care are engaging and reparenting as they're parenting, right? So it's a can seem nebulous but it really is a beautiful thing so the second thing that i wanted to say was um i was really angry at you whenever i read this because i thought that i was just like ready to throw away the greek system but you made me like it <laughs> like you made me be like oh this is this is wow <laughs> 
So that's why, that's the only thing. I just had to grudge and I'm, um, you know, I like to stay mad once I get mad. And, I keep, <laughs> and then I get even more mad when people make sense and they talk me out of it. And you did that. <laughs> you, did, <laughs> you did that. All right. To close out our podcast uh, episode, tell us what is um, a musical artist that you have been into lately. You share, if you have one, I have been obsessed with uh, Beast Deadwell. Have you ever heard of him? I don't think so. Go look it up. Okay. Um, there's a whole like, I'm in love with a Scorpio song. Oh gosh. <laughs> and then um, B's song, Greens, talking about B is a, a queer black person. I don't know how um, oh, yeah, I identify. Um, but they talk about they're going to cook this person the best greens they've ever had because they got to keep you healthy for me and it's just like queer sex queer it's so great so beast dead well and then king princess has this song called holy that i really like to scream sing like i like like i used to do during my alanis morissette days so tell us, <laughs> oh, what is your song or your oh, art i and this is funny because my friends know my music taste is very 70s and 80s, so I don't listen to a lot of the new stuff. I'm trying to get better about it. Um, I am trying to get better about it. I will say uh, with the book, that with the next book that I'm working on, um, the music that I'm listening to is that of um, Donna Summer and Gloria Gaynor. Okay. Um, Donna Summer primarily. I, I went down a rabbit hole one night. Every time I write, a, a write like I have to work on like a major project, I always try and figure out like what my musical inspirations will be for the project. And so I went down a rabbit hole like four until like four in the morning one night, like just researching Donna Summer, all her music, what her life was like, what her career was like. And I was like, okay, I think this is, I think this is it. Like it was something really resonating with me. And then I started playing her music and I was like, oh wow, like I had no idea. Like, and so Donna Summer has been like on heavy rotation as I write I this. Case. I love it. So is there going to be a chapter in the next book titled Bad Girls? <laughs> Probably not. But, <laughs> um, but the right. next book, I'm excited about the next book. I'm not excited to get these edits back because they're going to be a lot, but I am excited about the next book. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.